Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, February 22nd, 2011. Today is the two-year anniversary of my arrival in Indiana. That's right. To celebrate the anniversary of my second year in Indiana completed, it snowed today. (laughs) I actually love the snow. And I'm looking forward to a little bit of warmer weather so I can get outside. You know, walk, play some disc golf, go to the park, play fetch with my dog. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said, and uh, and so, in fact, I think we are truly the only long-form discernment uh, radio program on on you know available anywhere actually actually and and the idea here is is that I try not to deal in sound bites. I try to really chop things into big pieces or listen to something in its entirety and to compare the uh, the the overall teaching about what's being said about God to what God's word is clearly said. The reason being is because it all comes back down to who are you going to trust? Um, are you going to trust Jesus Christ? Or are you going to trust these Johnny-come-lately uh, purveyors of uh, spiritual snake oil? You know what's funny is, is uh, I, I was uh, at the uh, Barnes & Noble bookstore the other day, um, and uh, I, from time to time my wife and I, we enjoy going to Barnes and Noble and you know, they have like a little uh, Starbucks right there inside of the Barnes and Noble. And, you know, it, it's fun for me because um, th- it's all part of my program prep. Uh, when I go to Barnes and Noble, I, I usually go and peruse uh, the latest uh, titles, uh, the light, the latest books being uh, put out there in the, uh, in the so-called Christian marketplace um, by so-called Christian uh, authors and so-called Christian publishing houses, and just am amazed at some of the stuff there. But what's funny is, is that um, they had moved things a little, around a little bit, and so I'm th- it, when I uh, w- was there over the weekend, I went, man, it, is it me, or does it seem like the uh, the Christian section just got smaller? And so, you know, I, I looked around one of the uh, the bookcases they had there, and sure enough, they had separated out an, an entire segment of uh, the books, and the name of it was Religious Fiction. And I thought, you know, there's a problem here, and that is, is that this um, this title for the section, Religious Fiction, really needs to be put up uh, up at the other end uh 
where you had the books by Brian McLaren, uh, <laughs> uh, Doug Paget, some of the latest books put out by the Emergent Church guys, some of the prosperity preachers. Um, I mean, there was. I even saw a, a so-called Christian fitness book, and I just thought, oh, good night. And I and I saw. A, and I did see a book for the Daniel Fast. Apparently, you know, there's a Daniel Fast book that's out, and it's I think it's different than the Daniel Plan thing that uh, Rick Warren is uh, doing. It makes you wonder if if Rick Warren didn't steal the idea for the quote Daniel Plan uh, from the person who wrote the Daniel Fast books. But I, you know, I, I realized the entire section, really, with the exception of just a couple of books, and and I mean that in in all sincerity. I, I actually spent probably an hour and a half perusing, you know, every one of the different books, you know, kind of looking at what's available. And I'm absolutely convinced that the entire section should be relabeled religious fiction. And you're sitting there going, well, Chris, that's that's just a whole, yeah, I know I understand that, but that's really what it comes down to, is that you're either going to believe Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ made it clear that he believed the entire Old Testament to be nothing less than the Word of God. He never deconstructed it. Never once did he attack its authority. Never once did he say anything to diminish it. In fact, everything that Jesus ever said about the the Old Testament, including the stories that all the evolutionists are bent out of shape about, uh, you know, the the stories that tell us about Adam and Eve and things like that. Uh, Jesus makes it perfectly clear that he believed all of those to be true, and he said that they are the Word of God, and he said the Word of God cannot be broken, and he said heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And then what we find out about, you know, if we want to know anything about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus made it perfectly clear that we're not going to know anything about him except for through the ones that he chose and sent out into the world, his apostles. And so there's no way to disconnect or bifurcate Jesus into two different types of Jesus, the Jesus of faith and the Jesus of history. They're one and the same. In fact, there is no other source that you can go to, not one aside from the people that Jesus personally handpicked to get a, an account of uh, of who he is, what he said, what he did and what he accomplished and how he is to be uh, you know looked at and proclaimed. Uh, you know, thinking, well, what about Luke? Luke wasn't a, an apostle. Yeah, I understand that, but read what Luke said at the beginning of his gospel. He got all of his information from the eyewitnesses. So there is no other place that you can go to find out about Jesus than through the apostles, and this is what Jesus chose. And so the, the question comes up, what are you going to do with this? Who are you going to believe? Jesus, who says that the whole enterprise from both the Old Testament on into the New Testament, because the New Testament is nothing more than the, uh, the, do, the written preaching of the apostolic teaching that was going on in the early part of the first century after Jesus ascended into heaven. So who are you going to believe? You're going to believe Jesus or are you going to believe the latest Johnny Come Lately liberal uh, critic or whatever? You know, yeah. I, it's serious. I mean, until Brian McLaren rises from the dead, I, I refuse to grant him greater credentials than uh, Jesus Christ. Until Marcus Borg rises from the dead, I, I, I don't think he even can come close to the credentials that Jesus has. Because what we find out from the eyewitness testimony is that Jesus Christ is none other than the God of the Jews in human flesh. Yeah, that God. He's him in human flesh. And he has come to take away the sins of the world. In fact, Jesus, you know, had a precursor. He had somebody who prepared the way before him. And this is a man who was prophesied by the prophet Micah who would prepare the way of the Lord. And it was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said of Jesus Christ, Behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So who are you going to believe? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God? Or as John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, who is God in human flesh. Are you going to believe him? Or are you going to believe, well, you know, the, 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 the new purveyors of doubt who call it Christianity, the Doug, Jones, uh, the Doug Padgett's, the Tony Jones, the Brian McLaren's, and the people who hang out at the Christianity 21, uh, the Christ, uh, trans, a Big Tent Christianity Conference, or the Christianity, uh, yeah, all the bizarre you know, things. Who are you going to believe? And if you think that you're getting Christianity from the conservative folks who are teaching you that Jesus Christ and Christianity are all about giving you an abundant life, yeah, then that's not the biblical teaching either. In fact, we'll we'll, we'll kind of talk about uh, the apostolic meta narrative uh, in today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Got a lot of ground to cover, uh, so uh, let, let's talk about what we're going to talk about. Uh, we're going to begin today by listening to a little bit of Patricia King and what remains of this uh, segment, and uh, we're going to, we're going to be listening to Patricia King talk about the blessing zone. Apparently. That's somewhere just to the east of the Twilight Zone. But she knows all about it because she's uh, very familiar with the Blessing Zone, apparently. And uh, then, when we get, uh, then when we get back, we're going to uh, listen to a quick soundbite from uh, Dr. D.A. Carson about the intolerance of tolerance. Yeah, this, you need to hear this because you know, this is something I've experienced personally. All those people who talk about radical inclusivity and tolerance, you know, think about the, uh, the neo-emergence, uh, some of the people who hang with the outlaw preachers. Yeah, they're radically inclusive and tolerant until you disagree with their ideology. And at that point, the, the thing that cannot be tolerated is dissent from their idea of tolerance. And so, yeah, and you know, you're thinking, okay, what? You just use the word ideology. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is an ideology is generally some kind of an idea or concept that gets stuck in somebody's head that is absolutely dis- there's no way to disprove it. And if you disagree with them, you must be destroyed. You think Marxism, things along those lines, or fascism, think you know, along those lines. Yeah. Anyway, we've we've got a we've got a new version of that running around the landscape. And, you know, we'll, maybe we'll talk about it today. So, and then we're going to play part two today of reframing Jesus by Brian McLaren, and we're going to spend just a little bit of time test. I mean, here's the deal: Brian McLaren thinks that j- him just coming up with a quote possibility, uh, a possible explanation for something, somehow means that we can just chuck the whole Christian enterprise. And uh, we're going to just take his little, quote, possibility that he puts up in regards to reframing Jesus and just test it, you know, using just a little bit of scholarly juice here. You know, if you, you know a little bit of Christian history, see if the claims that he's making can even hold up or whatsoever, that, that you know, as if that, you know, and to see if he has license to reframe Jesus any old way he wants to. And uh, then our sermon today, last week we uh, played a rap video, uh, audio from a rap video from Stovall Weems uh, from Celebration Church in Jacksonville, Florida. Well, uh, I I told you that he actually raps better than uh, he preaches. Well, I'm going to prove that today. Um, Yeah, we're going to be reviewing a um, a sermon by Stovall Weems entitled Awakening, Remember and Respond. Uh, And so that'll be our sermon review for uh, today. So we've, in fact, we're going to be spending some time in the Genesis text, uh, you know, uh, regarding Abraham. So 
we got a lot of ground to cover. we got a lot of comparative work to do today. Make yourself comfortable, fuzzy bunny slippers, if you're in, in uh, cold weather climate. Uh, those of you, uh, all in fact, all of our listeners, take a moment and pause and pray for our brothers and sisters in uh, New Zealand. Uh, there was a, a terrible earthquake in Christchurch, New Zealand, and uh, and, it, it, and our Kiwi brothers and sisters uh, and the entire um, city of Christchurch down there in New Zealand needs our prayers and support, so stop and pray for them. Anyway, with that, we're going to uh, dive into the program proper, and, uh, well, if we're going to talk about Patricia King, then, well, we've got to play this. Now, do you know where the blessing zone is? Now, now, don't confuse it with the in football. We have the red zone, or don't confuse it with you know the twilight zone. But apparently, Patricia King knows about this place called, well, the blessing zone, and apparently, you can live in the blessing zone. Here is Patricia King to explain the details. My name's Patricia King, and today we're going to be talking about living in the blessing zone. That's right. You know, um, when I became a Christian, I discovered very quickly through the revelation of the Spirit of God and His Word, the work. Notice that. I discovered really quickly via the revelation of the Spirit of God, that means God speaking to her directly. Oh, and God's Word. That should key you into something here. Here, Here's the Here's the deal, folks. Um, one of the classic ways in which you can tell that there is a heresy going on, and I and I mean this in the truest sense of the word, is when somebody puts alongside of the Bible a, an equally authoritative source, okay? And what I mean by that is, you know, for instance, I mean, you, you ask a Mormon, you go, hey, you know, I understand that you, uh, you're a member of uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yes, I am. All right, well, do you believe in the Bible? I sure do. I believe the Bible is the Word. Oh, wow, you believe it's the Word? Yeah, it's, I believe it's the Word of God. And you sit there and go, really? Yeah, and I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. You do? Yes, and I believe that, that uh, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Really? Wow. Okay, so if you don't really know anything about Mormonism— you know, they, them just spouting out a few of those facts, you're going to sit there and think, well, I, 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 these guys sound like Christians to me. <laughs> but then what they haven't told you is it's like, oh, and oh, and by the way, regarding the Bible being the Word of God, well, we only believe that the King James Bible is the Word of God insofar as it's correctly translated. And uh, and we also believe the Book of Mormon's the uh, Word of God, and we believe the Doctrine and Covenants is the Word of God. Word of God. Oh, and all of the documents in the Pearl of Great Price, we believe that's also equally the Word of God. Oh, and we have a living prophet, too. And you realize, aha, we've got a problem, and that is, is that all of this other stuff that's also equally the Word of God or the authoritative Word of God, um, well, it just dilutes and... Um, and obscures what God's Word says. So do you really believe the Bible's the Word of God? Now, again, so the idea here is is that one of the ways you can spot a heretic is that heretics do one of two things, all right? Are you ready? They either subtract from the Bible, okay? Think of Marcion. If you're familiar with Marcion, Marcion was a Gnostic heretic, and Marcion, uh, the Marcionite heresy basically said, oh, listen, the, the, the God who's revealed in the Jewish Old Testament— 
Yeah, he's one of the he's one of the Gnostic demiurges, and he's evil and he's bad. And so we've got to get rid of anything that has to do with Judaism. And so uh, the old all of the Old Testament, poof, it's gone. Um, the Gospel of Matthew, poof, it's gone. The reason why the Gospel of Matthew is gone, well, is it's too Jewish. Yeah, and so and you know, and so then you know, what what are you left with? Well, not much, and except for the God uh, that is in, that was created in Marcion is his image. Uh, and uh, and we have a limited text. Uh, Thomas Jefferson did the same thing. Thomas Jefferson, being one of the first Enlightenment modernist kind of guys, he didn't. He believed in natural law and things of that nature, and he was a materialist in his uh, in his assumptions. And so, as a result of it, he didn't believe that miracles were possible. He bought into the. Uh, the circular logic of uh, David Hume's philosophies, and basically went the other. Listen, if a, mir- a miracle is a is a breaking of uh, of the laws of nature, that can't happen. So therefore, miracles can't happen. And so he he took a, an exacto knife out and started cutting out all of the passages that where any miracles were taking place. And so you had it. You had the Jeffersonian Swiss cheese uh, edition of the New Testament. And chief among the things that had to go, well, Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead, that's a miracle, and that can't have happened, despite the fact the Apostle Paul said that if Christ is not raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain, and the whole th- the whole Christian enterprise is futile. It's not a good thing. So, now that's one way you, you know you can you you can you can go into error. But the other way is via addition. And so what we just heard from Patricia King is is that I learned early on in my Christian experience via direct revelation from the Holy Spirit and and the Bible. See, Patricia King believes the Bible is the Word of God, but see the thing is is that. Patricia King equally believes that all of the direct revelation she's getting from God as well as equally the um, the word of God. And so she's she's a heretic by addition. Okay. Catholicism does the same thing when they basically say that the the supposed unwritten traditions of the church, you know, these other doctrines that aren't recorded in the Bible, that but somehow we can trace them back through the foggy time uh, through foggy history in you know that these you know you know like uh mary being co-redemptrix and all that kind of bizarre stuff yeah yeah that their tradition and the uh, the edicts of the pope you know those are additions okay and you sit there go well chris what about the book of concord i'm glad you asked book of concord is not authoritative in and of itself all the book of concord is is a summary of the correct way of looking at the scriptures if you would it's and it's not just something that showed up out of the sky it, you know it, it, you know in you know the uh, 16th century instead the lutheran dogmaticians took great pains to demonstrate that the articles of faith that they believed taught and confessed were not only consistent with a, with what the scriptures taught in context using his, the historical grammatical method, but that these articles of faith and these confessions were also consistent with what the church has taught from the beginning. Okay, And so they are confessional documents, and confessional documents are only worth the salt in so much as they correctly summarize uh, uh, it, what the scriptures teach. Okay, so yeah, no, the Book of Concord is, I would just basically say that it's just a really darn good and really, 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 really accurate summary of uh, of the major doctrines and articles of faith with that are taught clearly in the scriptures, and it's summarized in such a way that they're useful in uh, teaching uh, people what the what the major doctrines are of the Christian faith, and re- and they're really, really good for refuting heretics. Is just something I've noticed. So. Anyway, that so you, you get what I'm saying here. So we have got a problem with Patricia here, and the reason why we have a problem, well, 
well, she's got two sources of the Word of God, and one of them is directly to her brain. Let's continue. Patricia King, and today we're going to be talking about living in the blessing zone. That's right. You know, um, when I became a Christian, I discovered very quickly through the revelation of the Spirit of God and His Word that we're called to live in blessing, that we've been delivered out of darkness and into the light, out of curse into blessing. And so as a... Okay, um, what is, how are you defining the term blessing here? young Christian, God introduced me to his principles and his word concerning lifestyle in the glory and in the kingdom of God. Uh, what? <laughs> uh, where is Where are the great lifestyle in the glory passages uh, taught in the scripture? Yeah, I, I've never heard that one, at least not in my Bible. And as a result um, of what he's taught me over the years, I've just actually finished a book called In the Zone. And it's about. Oh, I see. You're shilling for a book. Got it. Okay. About living in the blessing zone. And so there's a lot of. Yeah, uh, by the way, if you were to, you know, grab a computerized Bible and type in the word blessing zone or the words blessing zone and then hit search, you'd probably get the spinning pinwheel of death. It would never come up with anything. In fact, it would just sit there and crunch and crunch and go, it's not here. I can't, can't find it good insights in this book that I'm going to be sharing some of them with you in this program today because I want you to live in the blessings of God. As I've traveled around in different um, uh, Christian circles and conferences. You know, I'm so glad that you want me to live in the blessings of God. Don't you think that the uh, living in the blessings of God would have something to do with what the apostles taught uh, regarding repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name as a result of his Death and bloody sacrifice, atoning sacrifice on the cross for our sins that propitiated the wrath of God. I mean, I mean, the Bible does talk about how one, you know, by nature we were dead in trespasses and sins and at at war with God. But how God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. So, I mean, if we're going to talk about blessings of God, I mean, don't you think everything really starts, ends, and focuses back there? You know, on on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith? You you know, just, you know, wondering, you know. I meet so many Christians that are not experiencing the blessings, and it grieves my heart because I know we can be. Uh, Huh? So you've got this two-tiered Christianity. On on the one side, you've got the people who are experiencing the blessings via the lifestyle of the glory, whatever that is. The Bible doesn't even talk in those terms. But but, but you've got all these other Christians. They're Christians, but they're just not living in the blessing zone. Maybe the reason why they're not living in the blessing zone, Patricia, is because the Bible doesn't teach any such nonsense. You know, when I go when I go back and I read the uh, writings of the early church fathers, I I just I I don't see anything about the blessing zone being mentioned by you know Irenaeus, Tertullian, Polycarp, Ignatius, Augustine. None of those guys really ever did talk about the blessing zone. So I mean, it's not just today. There's a whole bunch of quote Christians who just aren't living in the blessing zone. Apparently, I mean, this has been something that Christians have been suffering from for the last 2,000 years. Until Patricia King came along, there was no Christians living in the blessing zone. Oh, well, 
I'm so glad that God sent Patricia King to clear this up, you know, because, you know, uh, we all know that, I mean, uh, Christianity is just not satisfying without this new teaching that she's come along to give us. Experiencing the blessings, and it grieves my heart because I know we can be. It's all in the Word. It's all true. And it's just how we get hold of it and apply it. One of the um, items that we have in our bookstore is a CD set actually called If You See It, You Can Have It. It's based on Deuteronomy 29.29. (laughs) If you see it, you can have it? Isn't that the storyline of Yertle the Turtle? Yeah, you remember um, that uh, Dr. Seuss wrote a, uh, a children's story called Yertle the Turtle, and he was the king of all that he could see. The king of the land, the king of the sea, the king of the fish, the king of you know all the king of the trees, all that kind of stuff. And so he commanded all these other turtles to you know come and you know sit underneath him so he can go higher and higher and higher so that he could be king of more because the more he saw, the more he was king of. Is I mean, isn't that Yertle of the Turtle theology? And didn't Dr. Seuss write Yertle of the Turtle as an um as an allegory against Adolf Hitler? <sighs> yeah, just this is bad. It says the secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us. Therefore, if the Holy Spirit reveals something to us, then he intends for us to not only have it, but to experience it, not just to believe it in our mind, but to experience that. That's why. Yeah, you got all of that out of that out of context verse. I mean, serious. How much you want to bet if we were to put that back in context? That's not what that verse says at all. If you could see it, you can have it. Yeah, that's the Yertle the Turtle theology. Unbelievable. Anyway, I think you got the idea what's going on here. We're up on our, oh man, first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Chicago, 6 p.m. Inside Lucy Perkins' bedroom. I want to tell you my secret now. Okay. I see emergent people. In your dreams? No. When you're awake? Yeah. Emergent people like in coffee shops and cohorts? Walking around like regular people. They don't see the truth. They only see what they want to believe. 
How often do you see them? All the time. They're everywhere. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, if somebody's telling you that we need to rethink God, reimagine God, to, uh, you know, kind of reframe Jesus, run for your life. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, when you get there. You will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's not a lot of money to you, but it's a lot of money to us because the more people that sign up for that, it helps make it so that we can consistently count on uh, that money coming in month after month after month in order for us to pay our bills. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Yeah, while we're talking about emergence and postmoderns, uh, somebody on uh, my Facebook wall uh, sent me a link to this uh, Fine little soundbite from uh, Dr. D.A. Carson regarding the intolerance of tolerance. You need to listen to this uh, before we listen to Brian McLaren. Here we go. Here's D.A. Carson. The intolerance of tolerance. And it's important to understand that the notion of tolerance then within this framework has itself a certain intellectual heritage that has been transmuted by postmodernism. Under the modernist paradigm, tolerance looked something like this. I may disagree with you, but I insist on your right to articulate your opinion, however stupid and ignorant I think it is. That's tolerance. In other words, this means that there is tolerance for the individual to say things with which I disagree. The tolerance is directed toward individuals. But there is robust debate at the level of content and substance. 
So I may disagree profoundly with Marxist historiography, but if I'm a tolerant person under a modernist regime, I insist on the right of Marxist historiographers to articulate their views. But likewise, under the Western vision of, of tolerance, under, under a modernist camp, then I insist on the right of capitalists to articulate their views, or theists to articulate their views, or, or whatever. However right or wrong I think they are. So that unless there is something deeply, deeply damaging to a, a, a public well-being, as, for example, somebody coming along and um, advocating vociferously pedophilia, then the notion of tolerance allows you to defend almost anybody teaching almost anything. Because, you see, under the modernist paradigm, the assumption is that in the marketplace of disputed ideas, the truth will come out. There is a truth to be searched out. There is a truth to be pursued. Truth, ultimately, is desirable and attainable. So, in other words, this view of tolerance is itself tied to a certain kind of vision of truth, a certain kind of epistemology. But once you change the epistemology and lose that vision of truth, tolerance itself is redefined. Now tolerance means that you must not say that anybody is wrong. That's the one wrong thing to say. But now notice, under this view of tolerance, you are tolerant not of individuals. You are tolerant of all positions. The tolerance is now directed toward all views that are articulated because you are not in a position to say that any view is wrong. The one thing that is not tolerated is the view that this view of tolerance is wrong. And thus you have the intolerance of tolerance. Worse, if somebody comes along and says this view of tolerance is wrong, under this view of tolerance, that view, that person is not tolerant and therefore should not be tolerated. That person is a bigot. And because there is no understanding of tolerance directed toward the individual, but only towards all views, except that view which says that this view of tolerance is wrong. Therefore, the university campus can become a very scary place toward anybody who says that there may be an absolute right and wrong after all, or an absolute truth. I would argue that this new view of tolerance is, in fact, logically incoherent. I don't simply mean that it is inconsistent, that is, it, it proves intolerant. I don't mean that. It is inconsistent, but I mean something worse than that. I think that it is incoherent. Because the very notion of tolerance, under whatever regime, presupposes that you have to disagree with someone or something before you tolerate it. You see, if I say, on my university campus, I will tolerate those who propagate uh, Islam or Marxism or whatever, it doesn't matter, I have to disagree with it before I can use the word tolerate. If I say, well, you know, you're no more right nor wrong than I am. 
I may agree with you. I tolerate you. It's incoherent. That doesn't even make sense. To be able to tolerate something, you've got to disagree with it in the first place. But if, in fact, you are not in a position to say that any position is wrong, how can you speak of tolerating it? Thus, I would argue that the new definition of tolerance is not only inconsistent, it's incoherent and proves, in fact, to be less tolerant than the brand of tolerance that was around under modernism. That's right. Because at the very point where it comes up with that which disagrees with it the most, it has to dismiss all opponents as intolerant and bigoted and therefore becomes, in fact, totalitarian. Right on. That's exactly right. This postmodern view of tolerance is not the same as the type of tolerance that occurred during the time of modernism. The, the postmodern version of tolerance is, in fact, a totalitarian regime that is putting forth an ideology that cannot be questioned, cannot be challenged, and you must agree with their view of tolerance or you will not be tolerated. That's not tolerance. That's just flat-out Hitlerian evil, and I mean that in its full sense. Yes, I compared that idea of tolerance to Hitler, and I did it on purpose because what I said is true. Boy, oh boy. All right, moving along here. It's uh, now time for part two of our, um, well, hang on. We're going to talk about McLaren. we got to play his theme music. And Jupiter aligns with Mars Then peace will guide the planets And love will steer the stars This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius Age of Aquarius All right. Uh, yeah, Brian McLaren, this is part two uh, from his speech at the Big Tent Christianity Conference. And I'm going to back up the audio about about a minute so that we can hear this all in context. Uh, but the uh, this is his speech on reframing Jesus. Now, before we get into this, I'm going to put something out there. Just because you have some kind of an explanation for something doesn't mean that your explanation is automatically true and that that gives you the license to then just trash the entire Christian endeavor. For instance, if you have an explanation as to how Jesus was incarnate, and it wasn't that he was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, but that instead that he was actually conceived by the alien named Schlagsblatt, and Schlagsblatt comes from the planet Jupiter, uh, just because you came up with that explanation and think that it's internally consistent, that that means that you could now have the freedom to basically claim that Jesus is uh, is a alien, uh, um, uh, alien-human hybrid, that, and that explains why he was able to co- uh, perform miracles. Yeah, no, you actually have to prove the existence of Schlagsblag and have to prove that, that, that uh, Jesus was actually the product of... Um, uh, let's just say, uh, uh, well, copulation between Shaj Blog and and the uh, and the Virgin Mary. Now, as McLaren goes, as he begins to speak here, he's going to come up with some explanations regarding what he considers the overarching meta narrative or 
you know, or the story of of uh, of how the Bible has gotten told, and he's going to blame it on Augustine. He's going to blame it on basically say, well, we have scholars that here that say that this idea really fits with the idea of of the Roman Empire and the Roman imperial system. Therefore, we have now the freedom. I uh, say, so, oh, well, that's what the problem is. Is that's where this came from? It came from there. So now we have the freedom to to reframe Jesus in fresh, new, and exciting ways. You know, you actually have to prove your thesis, and I'm going to disprove it with a brutal bunch of facts today. Growing up, Jesus, you do that too. And I think as satire, uh, you know, can do, uh, I mean, in a way, he's telling the story of, of our religion. We all are tempted, myself included, all of us are tempted to create all of these different visions of Jesus. And, and um, uh, some of them are a little bit scary. Um, there's the, uh, the tribal, nationalist, ethnic, religious, us versus them, Jesus, who've been back, who's been back and colonizers and empire builders since the 4th century. And there's the personal enhancement, Jesus, very popular to enhance yourself in this life and in the next. The stained glass, Jesus, very popular uh, in a lot of our you know, more traditional churches. Nice people with nice music and nice windows and so on. Ticket to heaven, Jesus, solving the problem of original sin and total depravity. Uh, the institutional Jesus, uh, he may have pre- uh, proclaimed a radical kingdom, but we created a big bureaucratic religion out of it. There's the second coming warrior Jesus, who may have been a peace- peaceful the first time, but he'll be back. <laughs> Which brings to mind for all of the UHF fans a great scene in that movie where they show a commercial for Gandhi 2. And Gandhi steps out of a limousine and says, he's back. And this time, it's no Mr. Passive Resistance. <laughs> he goes like this, and he's got two beautiful women on his arm. He walks in, he sits down in a really high-class restaurant and says, I'd have a steak, please. Well done. You know, and it just, it's just, uh, it just goes from bad to worse. <laughs> but I think we are really in a moment where we need a, a, fresh, a fresh vision of Jesus. And there's been so much going on in, in, in the whole work of of revisioning Jesus. Okay, so there's all this new good work, good work going on in the in in helping us to revision Jesus. See the yeah, you know, basically what it comes down to is they hate, and I mean that with with every possible depth of what that word means. Brian McLaren hates, hates, hates with all of his heart the Jesus that's revealed in Scripture. He hates him. And you're sitting there, well, he's going to talk about the meta-narrative, but the thing is is that the, the, the explanation that the church has given regarding Jesus, who he is, and what he came to do, it's exactly what the church has taught from the beginning. It's not a novelty of Augustine. It's what the scriptures teach about Jesus. Let's continue. Uh, putting back Jesus back in his native historical setting, very pleasant. Of course, we're honored to have Marcus Ford here, who you'll be hearing from tonight who he and others have played a really, really important role in, in helping us let Jesus be Jewish again and let Jesus be... Marcus Borg, basically, at, at this conference, said that if you believe that the Bible is divine, then you haven't read it. Marcus Borg is a hater of the Bible. In the first century, not the sixth or the sixteenth or whatever. Um, the new insights into Jesus' religion. That, that we, we literally know more about Jesus' religion uh, the, the Judaism, and could we say the Judaisms of Jesus' day, 
we know more now than, than we've known, uh, probably since the first century itself. And so, um, as well, we're learning to see Jesus primarily through the sight line of his ancestors rather than his descendants. That's important enough that I'm... Now listen, I'm going to explain this here. Seeing Jesus primarily through the sight line of his ancestors than through his descendants. You see what's going on there? Here's the deal. This is something that you have to keep in mind, that in the Bible we have what's called progressive revelation. Okay, What I mean by that is, is that when we look at the Torah, if we were just to only have the Torah, we would have a picture of God and it would be fuzzy. It wouldn't be complete. You add into it uh, you know, the, uh, the writings, you add into it the prophets, you add into it the Psalms, and now we have a more, we, we have a picture of God that's getting clearer. But then you get to Jesus, and now you have a you have the you had the full revelation, and that's really what was going on in uh, in fact. Let me find this. I think it's in Hebrews. Hang on a second here. Got I I did. Oh man, I can't believe I did this. I didn't have my computerized Bible open prior to the program. I restarted my computer. I loaded some software on my computer today, and I did not. Uh, I did not, uh, well, anyway, here, here we go. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So the idea is, is that, yeah, in the past God spoke this way, but now he's given us a definitive revelation. And the reality is we cannot know nothing about God apart from what the apostles revealed. Oh, I mean, uh, we can't know anything about Jesus except for what the apostles recorded in their eyewitness testimony. Now, if you're thinking, well, what about Paul? I want to make something perfectly clear. Paul got his theology directly from Jesus. I'm going to read a couple of passages to you. The first is found in Galatians chapter 1. I'm going to read it starting at verse 11. Here's what Paul says. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. What's the gospel that Paul preached? Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture that he was buried and raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. So Paul says, I want you to know the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? The Apostle Paul, he got his gospel directly from Jesus. And you're thinking, well, how do you know that if the gospel he was preaching was the same as what the disciples um, taught? Good question. Well, actually, Paul, if you keep reading in Galatians, he made a trip to Jerusalem and laid out his gospel to the apostles, to Peter and the and the you know the heads of the church in Jerusalem, and they said, "Yep, that's right, you got it." That's Rosebro's paraphrase, but that's what it comes down to. And not only that, they put their stamp of approval on what he was doing and said, "It's obvious that the Lord has called you to preach this good news to the Gentiles. We're going to keep preaching it to the Jews." Okay, so. And let me read another passage for you. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Acts chapter 18. And I want to point something out to you. There's some red letters in Acts chapter 18. For all the red-letter Christians out there, yeah, the red-letter Christians, those are the uh, the liberals out there who say, well, we believe that the le- red letters are more weighty than the 
the non-red. Okay, great. Well, the, I've got some red letters that they have to consider when, when looking at Paul. And all of this comes back to, again, McLaren's basically saying, we need to look at Jesus through his ancestors, not his descendants. That's 180 degrees backwards. 180. Why? Because he wants the foggy Jesus. He, wants, he, wa- he doesn't want the clear revelation because he doesn't agree with the clear revelation. He hates it. But let me read this. Acts chapter 18, I'll start at verse 5. When uh, Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus, that the Messiah was Jesus. And, that they, and when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justice, a worshiper of God. That means somebody who was studying to become a Jew, uh, is a Gentile studying to become a Jew. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his, his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed, and they were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, <clears throat> who said this? Oh, yeah, the Lord said this. So this, these are red letters. So the Lord, Jesus, said to Paul one night in a vision, quote, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Yeah, apparently Jesus liked what Paul was saying so much, he wanted to give him a good shot in the arm and basically encourage him to keep on doing it. Keep talking. Keep talking, Paul. Don't let anyone make you be silent. I've got people here. You just keep preaching what you're preaching. Jesus himself, in the red letters, putting his stamp of approval on the gospel and message that Paul preached. Why? Because the gospel that Paul preached wasn't man's gospel. It was given to him by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. In fact, that's how Paul even became a Christian, because the Lord appeared to him directly. Okay, God has the ability to break the rules in that sense, and he did in the case of Paul. So now, with this in mind, this idea, so the McLaren's saying, we need to look at Jesus through his ancestors— the less clear revelation, rather than his descendants, the clear revelation, and included in that is especially the Apostle Paul. We continue. More now than than we've known, uh, probably since the first century itself. And so, um, as well, we're learning to see Jesus primarily through the sight line of his ancestors rather than his descendants. That's important enough that I'm going to come back to it in a minute. And and there's all this radical rethinking of Paul and the apocalypse and once we unbolt some of those readings of Paul and the Apocalypse, it, it suddenly gives, especially those of us who, in the tradition of Augustine and Luther, are wedded to, to certain interpretations of Paul. Once those are unbolted, we get to see Jesus in a fresh light. Um, there's no- yeah, in other words, we have to get rid of the, the Apocalypse. That's the book of Revelation. And we have, to get ri- we have to unbolt certain readings of Paul. Once we can unscrew those and chuck them out, you know, just... You know, we don't like that furniture. We've got to get rid of it. Now we can read Jesus with a fresh new perspective. Now that we've gotten rid of those thorny passages that we just hate, you know, like justification by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, or where Paul says, there's no one righteous, no, not one, or as for you, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following, you know, you know those ideas, you know, the original sin and stuff like that. Yeah, well, once we can unbolt those and throw them overboard. Now we, oh, we're we free to actually rethink Jesus and have a fresh view of him. 
But it gets worse. And here, you know, there's more coming. Understanding the formation of the Gospels. Again, the kind of thing that Marcus and others have done such a good job of, of helping people become aware of. Uh, so notice he's praising Marcus Borg. Let that sink in. Um, uh, on top of that, I mean, that'd be like praising John Shelby Spong. In, in recent decades, this one of the most obvious things in the world, unbelievable that it was so, so missed. It's so out in the open, you couldn't have missed it, you know, but we missed it. Now listen, uh, that, that listen, listen to this. It's actually, in many ways, an anti-imperial book. But when you're part of an imperial legacy, it's amazing what you can be blind to, you know. Okay, so he's saying that the Bible is, at its core is an anti-imperial book. This is postmodern, postcolonialism themes. These are the themes of the neo-Marxists and the neo-fascists. Okay, and I and I mean that with all of all strength that I could possibly put into it. Okay, so apparently the emphasis there's a new emphasis that they've discovered on the themes of you know, regarding empire, captivity, and liberation. Okay, postcolonial, postmodernism, and that rediscovery of the anti-imperial, counter-imperial themes of the Bible it just changes the way we see everything, including Jesus. And it raises the question, what narrative do we put uh, Jesus in? Okay, now, if you're familiar with his book, A New Kind of Christianity, he's got this six-line thing that he's going to fill in the blanks. Now, you've got to pay close attention to this, because I'm going I'm to blow this apart with dynamite, with a, a group of facts that he will not be able to recover from, period. And not unless he wants to just keep lying, because, you know, Certain things that he's saying cannot be supported when you just look at the history and the evidence. But let's listen. And uh, any of you who had a chance to see this book I wrote last, uh, last year called A New Kind of Christianity, I, I kind of throw this out as a plot line. And most of us who grew up either conservative evangelical or conservative Catholic, as soon as I show this diagram, we can fill it in. You sort of mainline Protestants, you might be iffy on this, and the Anabaptists, they don't get it at all. But, uh, <laughs> but people from conservative background know how to fill in this plot line. Okay, and the plot line is this. Eden, the fall, um, the history of the world, and then you know you got a line that's salvation— uh, in heaven, and then one going uh, the other way to hell. So the idea is, so the 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 that the apparently this is the false plot line. This is not how you're supposed to read the Bible, according to McLaren. That you don't look at it in light of, you know, Eden, the fall, history of humanity. Jesus uh, uh, dies for our original sin, and there are some who repent and are forgiven and go to heaven, and others who continue in rebellion and go to hell. So yeah, the, this. This is the plot line that he's going to attack, and listen carefully. Plot line of a perfect Garden of Eden, a fall into original sin, fallen history, the fallen world, salvation, heaven, and hell. And, and I, I, it, I'm shocked how many years I went through my life having this vague discomfort because this was the narrative I placed every verse of the Bible in. I could pull verses out and I knew where to put them in that, in that outline. But always feeling a vague discomfort that the Bible itself never told this outline. Uh, and, and, and it's funny how it can be there with you without you, you questioning it. And then my suspicion grew that this outline actually is imported from a, a certain kind of argument in Greek philosophy. Okay, now listen. So he's basically saying that this plot line is not what the Bible teaches, but was imported into Christianity from Greek philosophy. And so 
he basically has changed the uh, the words from Eden to Platonic ideal to fall to uh, into Aristotelian reality, Aristotelian reality uh, to atonement and purification, Hades, uh, and then the salvation back to the Platonic ideal. Th- this shows a complete and utter misunderstanding, like lack of knowledge when it comes to the major themes of Platonism versus Aristotelian philosophy. The two are actually at odds. And so it's not just that somebody imported Greek philosophy into Christianity, but not, not only they imported, they imported two mutually exclusive contradictory philosophies and melded them together to create this, this, uh, this plot line. But it gets worse. We continue. Where Plato gets the eternals and Aristotle gets the temporals. And, and this in many ways ends up it, it brilliantly fusing the, one of the central arguments in Greek philosophy. Now, he's not proving this. Okay, I want to make something clear. Just because he claims that there's some kind of correlation doesn't prove that this is what happened. Okay. In fact, I'm going to present evidence here in a second that shows this is not at all what happened. He claims this was imported into Christianity, that some clever person smuggled in two warring philosophies, melded them together, and hijacked all of Christian doctrine the way we read the Bible with these Aristotelian, this, uh, this, this melding together of Aristotelian philosophy and uh, uh, Aristotelian and Platonic philosophy. It, just because McLaren says, you know, it looks suspiciously like that. He hasn't proved nothing. He hasn't, uh, he hasn't quoted a single uh, Greek philosopher. He hasn't quoted a single Greek historian or, or, or even a single philosopher. He can't point back to a Christianity in history. You're quoting the church fathers and say, look, here in the writings of uh, Clement of Rome, we have a, a, a Christianity that doesn't look anything like the Christianity that Augustine and Luther and uh, and uh, Orthodox Catholicism or uh, Protestantism talk about. No, no, this this you know this is something completely different. But it, but look, after this point, you know, all of a sudden the message is completely changed. He hasn't quoted or cited a single person. He hasn't shown any evidence whatsoever. He just said, you know, I suspect. I I just had this feeling that, and and that you know, it just it, it reminded me of this thing. And so, the, you know, and so this is his theory, but he has marshaled no evidence, not one shred of it, to support his theory. And I'm going to disprove it here in a second. Uh, an, an argument about the eternal and the temporal, and um, and. Uh, we, we kind of, all of us who are familiar with standard Western Christianity, we, we know how this works. And then my suspicion is also that this... Here's a suspicion again. You know, I, I, you know, I suspected, you know, that uh, the toasted cheese sandwich deity actually uh, had a hot date last night with the flying spaghetti monster. You know, I, I just have a suspicion that's the case. Uh, that this plays into Roman politics, because as you know, the, one of the most powerful weapons of the Romans... Now listen, he says that this plot line plays into Roman politics, the Roman Empire. He made the claim that the Roman that uh, that you know that the Bible is an anti-imperial book that's got these big anti-imperial themes, right? Okay, that it's this the that the real Christianity is this anti-imperialism. 
So apparently this thing got smuggled in, and of course it got smuggled in because now you know, this new smuggled-in idea makes Christianity the hammer of Roman Empire. We continue. And then my suspicion is also that this, uh, that this plays into Roman politics, because as you know, the mo- one of the most powerful weapons of the Romans... In, in expanding their empire wasn't just their chariots and phalanxes and spears and, and shields. It was the weapon of a superior philosophy or of a, of a philosophy that gave its holders the confidence to control other people and the confidence that they, that they were on a higher plane. So McLaren here, by make, drawing this comparison, he's basically saying that if you buy into this idea that in Eden... Humanity wasn't sinful that we were, quote, that humans were perfect, that they rebelled against God, fell into sin, and that Jesus comes to solve the problem of original sin, and that his death on the cross is for the forgiveness of sins, and that those who repent and believe are forgiven, and those who persist in unbelief go to hell. He says that this is the philosophical system, that the superior philosophical system that creates the confidence in people to enslave other human beings via empire. In other words, McLaren had just made the claim that this was imp- this is not Christianity, this is not what Jesus is about, but this was an idea that was smuggled and imported in, obviously used an imperial spy, brought this into Christianity in order to help them expand their imperial territory and their suppression and oppression and boot-thuggery of you know, of their imperial system against the inferior people outside of the Roman Empire. And that this same thing was used by uh, European colonizers and imperialists, and that this is really what's at the root of it. That this isn't really Christian. That's what he's saying. We continue. And so when you put that Greek philosophy and Roman politics together, and then you retell the Christian story in it, you can get some pretty weird things happening, like Constantine saying, let's put crosses on our shields so they can mean what the shields of the Roman Empire always meant, but now sub- and, and, and now subverting the Christian meaning of the cross, resistance is futile, you will be assimilated, becomes the new meaning. I mean, when, when you let that sink in, it's the kind of thing that makes you sick. Okay, now stop. That's where we're going to stop here. Now it's time for the brutal bunch of real facts. Did uh, Brian McLaren marshal a single text from any of the church fathers? Not one. He just said he has a suspicion. And see, this just feels like imperialism. This just feels like all this kind of stuff. Now for the brutal bit of facts, okay? If you were to uh, go to Google and uh, and type in persecutions of the Christians in during the Roman Empire, and you were to surf into the many sites, the, the many different sites that are available out there, that'll give you a quick snapshot and timeline of the persecution that Christians experienced while uh, while living in the Roman Empire. Okay, timeline is important. Okay. I I would point you to the persecution of the Christians that began in 177 A.D. 
under the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius. Now, the reason why I would point that to you is to point out that historically, that during this era, during the late part of the second century, Christians were being persecuted and murdered and martyred by the Roman government, by the emperor himself, okay? I would also point you to the Roman persecution that occurred under Septimus Severus. Septimus Severus ruled from 193 A.D. to 211 A.D. And you go, okay, why are you saying this, Chris? This is real. This is important. In the last, in the latter part of the second century, there was persecution of Christians, official persecution of Christians by the evil Roman Empire. No doubt about it. So Christianity and the Roman Empire were not getting along back at the end of the second century, not getting along at all. Christians would not have at this time allowed their religion to be hijacked by the major themes of the empire, not one bit. Now, that being the case, you could so pointing to the fact that late 2nd century under Marcus Aurelius, starting in 177 AD, and also under Septimus Severus, there was persecution of the Christians. Also, there was um, persecution of the Christians under uh, Max, Max, uh, Maximinus the Thracian, uh, his persecution of Christians occurred in 235 AD. By the way, you know, the persecutions of, Christian, of Christians occurred well through the 3rd century. Christianity was a religion that was it, it could get you killed. Okay, the martyr, the Christian martyrs in the second and third century are easy to find and document because the Christians wrote about it. Okay, so historical fact: Christianity and the Roman Empire were not friends in the late second century. That being the case, I would point you to a document written by the Church Father Irenaeus. The Church Father Irenaeus wrote this particular book between the years 182 and 188 A.D. That's 188 at the latest, okay? In fact, Irenaeus himself knows full well the the uh, you know the persecutions that occurred under the uh, as a result of the emperor, okay? He was no friend of the emperor himself. But Irenaeus actually wrote a book called Against Heresies. And again, it was written sometime between 182 and 188 AD in the heat of the persecution of the Christian church by the Roman Empire. I point you to Book 1, Chapter 10. Book 1, Chapter 10 of the book Against Heresies written by Irenaeus. We read, Church Father Irenaeus writes, he says, The church, though dispersed through, uh, throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. She, the church, believes in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, and the sea and all things that are in them, and in one Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation. 
and in the Holy and in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimed through the prophets the dispensations of God and the advents and the birth from a virgin and the passion and the resurrection from the dead and the ascension into heaven in in the in the flesh of the beloved Christ Jesus our Lord and his future manifestation from heaven in the glory of the Father to gather all things into one to raise up anew all flesh of the whole human race in order that to Christ Jesus our Lord and God, the Savior and King, according to the will of the invisible Father, every knee should bow of the things in heaven and the things in the earth and the things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess to him, and that he should execute just judgment towards all, and that he may send spiritual uh, send spiritual wickedness and the angels who transgressed and became apostates, together with the ungodly and the unrighteous and the wicked and profane among men, into everlasting fire, but may in exercise of his grace confer immortality on the righteous and the holy and those who have kept his commandments and have persevered in his love, some from the beginning of their Christian course and others from the date of their repentance, and may surround them with everlasting glory. Hmm. That sounds like the storyline that... McLaren said was imported in by some imperial spy to change the way we read the Bible. Yet Irenaeus makes it clear this is no later than 188 AD. We're talking, we are literally talking less than a hundred years after the last piece of the New Testament is written. Less than a hundred years, okay? Claiming that this Christian faith that he just outlined, which sounds a lot like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, and there's a reason for that, because the Apostles, the, this, this, this was otherwise known. There's several names that this goes under. This proclamation that I just read to you, it's called the Tradition of the Apostles. Okay, that's one word for it, uh, one, one way of describing it. Another way of describing it is the way Augustine describes it. He calls it the Rule of Faith. Okay? Basically, what this is, is an apostolic meta-narrative. This is an apostolic meta-narrative. It's a summary of the scriptures that gives us a way of understanding the plot line of the Bible so that we can read it correctly, okay? And so here, in no later than 188 AD, Irenaeus claiming that this faith that is the same faith that, uh, that, that, he, that the church received from the apostles and their disciples— Okay, and this is less than a hundred years, less than a hundred years after the close of the New Testament canon. Less than a hundred years. Okay. So let me continue reading. As I have already observed, the church having received this preaching and this faith, although scattered throughout the whole world, yet as if occupying but one house, carefully preserves it. She also believes these points of doctrine just as if she had but one soul and one in the same heart, and she proclaims them and teaches them and hands them down with perfect harmony as if she possessed only one mouth. For although the language of the world, uh, the languages of the world are dissimilar, yet the import of the tradition is one and the same. 
for the churches which have been planted in Germany do not believe or hand down anything different, nor do those in Spain, nor those in Gaul, nor those in the east, nor those in Egypt, nor those in Libya, nor those that have been established in the central regions of the world. But as the Son, that uh, that creature of God, is one and the same throughout the whole world, so also the preaching of the truth shines everywhere and enlightens all men that are willing to come to a knowledge of the truth. Nor will any of the rulers in the churches, however highly gifted he may be in point of eloquence, teach doctrines that are different from these, for no one is greater than the Master." So just using simple history, a simple understanding of the circumstances that, occur, that were for real in the early Christian church, less than a hundred years after the death of the Apostle John, less than a hundred years, you have Irenaeus writing a book where he outlines the very meta-narrative that McLaren hates that he says was imported and was a smuggling in of and a meshing of of platonic philosophy and aristotelian philosophy and it is the it's the and it's basically an imperial meta narrative and that that's the wrong reading he didn't quote a single historian he didn't quote a single uh, primary source i just did and i just showed Less than a hundred years after the death of the last apostle, the apostle John, the Christian church understood a basic outline of the Christian faith that included Christ coming to earth to die on the cross for our sins and him returning in judgment and sending the wicked to hell and by his grace bringing into heaven those who have repented and believed. And Irenaeus goes on to point out that this is what all of the churches everywhere teach as with one voice. So then who are you going to believe? Brian McLaren, who gave us not one, not one, not one shred of evidence, or are you going to believe Irenaeus? who I think was in a far better position to tell you what was going on doctrinally in the Christian church in the early in the in literally in the decades after the death of the last apostle far better position to tell you what's going on here and rather than rejecting the quote meta narrative that six line you know uh, outline of scripture um Irenaeus actually gives us the creed you know a, a, a early creed that confesses the need of salvation, repentance, the forgiveness of sins, and that Jesus is coming again in glory to send people to hell. If we don't need to be saved, then why is it that Irenaeus talks about our Savior? If we don't need to be saved from hell, then why is it that, that Irenaeus says that when Jesus returns, he's going to send the wicked to hell, into everlasting fire? So who are you going to believe? Brian McLaren or the early church father Irenaeus? I would go with Irenaeus because Irenaeus, the one thing you can say with certainty about him, he was not influenced by Greek philosophy or even Augustine because Augustine wasn't even a twinkle in his mother's eye because his mother wasn't even a twinkle in her father's eye then. Augustine doesn't come around until what, the 4th, 5th century? And this is the tail end of the 2nd. 
And the funny thing is, is that the faith that Augustine confesses is this exact same faith that Irenaeus confesses. See, McLaren wants to disconnect you from Jesus' descendants, descendants like Irenaeus, Augustine, Luther, and Paul, even though he's an apostle. Why? So that he can reframe Jesus any way he wants. And his explanation for doing it, there isn't a shred of evidence to support his suspicions. And that's all they are. They're just his suspicions. He hasn't, just because you have a suspicion and you throw some words up on a PowerPoint slide doesn't magically mean that what you're saying is true. McLaren has given no evidence to support his theory, not one bit of it, not one shred of it. Go with Irenaeus. Go with what the church has confessed all along. Jesus Christ died for our sins, and he's coming again with glory to judge the living and the dead. And men like McLaren and the heretics and apostates who follow his false doctrine and his deconstructing doubt, sadly, if they do not repent, will find themselves not having a good day when Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. Pray that God grants them repentance of their false doctrine and this tomfoolery and that they be forgiven for their heresies and apostasies. All right, we're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sermon review time in the other end of the break. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, turning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money 
on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review time. Put your thinking caps on and properly distinguishing law and gospel categories. Keep those in mind. You're going to need them. Remember, the law purposes to condemn you and show you your need for a Savior. It cannot save you unless you live it perfectly from the second you're conceived to the moment you die. That's not its purpose. Its purpose is to point you to Christ. Let's dive in. The good, the bad, and the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Celebration Church, Jacksonville, Florida. Pastor Stovall Weems presiding. That's right, Stovall Weems. We heard him uh, sing a rap song last week, and I made the claim that he raps better than he sings, and his rapping is awful. Well, actually, raps better than he preaches. Yeah, and his yeah, you got what I'm saying. Sometimes I get ahead of myself mentally, <laughs> and I go, "What did I just say?" Yeah. Anyway. He raps better than he preaches, and he raps terribly. That's what I meant to say. You, you got what I'm saying. The name of the sermon is Awakening. Remember and respond. In order to properly understand this sermon, you have to understand the proper distinction of law and gospel. The primary purpose of the law is to show you your sinfulness and need of a Savior. It cannot save you, nor do you... you know, the reality is, is that you don't keep it any day that you don't keep it. So if you think that you're saved or blessed because of your obedience, you've got another thing coming. The gospel teaches that we are saved because of God's grace and mercy through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that Christians are transformed from being dead in trespasses and sins to being alive in Christ. And that that new nature cannot help but do good works. That's what it does naturally. It's not done under compulsion. It's not done because you expect to earn brownie points with God. This is all very important stuff. With that in mind, we're going to dive into the program, uh, into the sermon. Let me kill this. So uh, here is Pastor Stovall Weems. Remember and respond. Here we go. All right. How's everybody doing today, huh? Good to see you guys. Let's go ahead and put our hands together for all of our locations today. Want to welcome you. That's right. Let's give ourselves a round of applause because we're so great. You in wherever you are attending Celebration Church today, or perhaps you're watching online. We are real glad that you're with us today. And I want to remind everyone just a couple of things. Remember, uh, if you're in a physical location today attending church, I want to remind you look in your church bulletin there. Uh, there is a commitment card, and we're just asking everyone to pray about their commitment to our Imagine. That's our over and above giving this season as we move forward here at Midtown with our new location at Bay Meadows Road to 9A and turn that in after the fast. How many of you are having a good season of prayer and fasting right now? You guys having a good season of fasting? 
course, we have a big wide open leadership tonight. And men, we have a huge men's meeting uh, this Saturday morning with Robert Morris from Gateway Church. He pastors a 20,000 member church over in Dallas. You've probably heard of his book, The Blessed Life, and just a great, great man of God, a good friend of mine. And we're excited about him being. Uh, by the way, he's plugging the book, The Blessed Life by Robert Morris. Let me uh, hang on a second here. Let me flip on over to Amazon.com. I, I pulled this up the other day, and I just couldn't believe what I saw on the cover of this thing. Um, let me see here. The Blessed Life. There it is. Okay, hang on a second here. Yeah, by Robert Morris. Listen to this. The, the Blessed Life, The Simple Secret to Achieving Guaranteed Financial Results. He's just plugged this book, The Blessed Life, the... Simple secret of achieving uh, guaranteed financial results. This is kind of like Gnosticism that reveals uh, that res- you know this is turning Christianity into something that reveals secret knowledge that you can have that you can achieve financial results in your life. Is that what Christianity is all about? Why would any pastor? Why would any Christian pastor be promoting that as if that's a Christian book? You know, should tell you something about his theology of his book, The Blessed Life, and just a great, great man of God, a good friend of mine, and we're excited about him being here with us uh, this weekend, guys, so you want to make that Saturday prayer or that Saturday men's breakfast, but since we're fasting, it's just a Saturday men's have some water, coffee, and juice gathering, so how about how about that? That's what we're going to call it, so if you have your Bibles, I want you to go to Genesis chapter 14, Genesis chapter 14. Go ahead and flip on over there. And uh, I'm really pumped about what I'm going to talk to you about today. You know, we've been talking about moving forward. And in this season of awakening, this season of prayer and fasting, we're talking about how to really move forward in the things that God has for us, how, how for our life to really move forward. And last weekend, we looked at Noah and how God moved his life forward. And this weekend, I want to take a look at another biblical character who in this part of his life, his name is Abram. Everybody say Abram. And uh, we are going to get to chapter 14 in just a few minutes, but I want to unpack a few things and walk you through a couple of chapters here to kind of bring you up to speed to where Abram is in his life right now. Now, I want to remind everyone that this year, my weekend messages are going to be based on our devotional reading. So I really encourage you to make personal devotion part of your life, not a, a part of your life, but make it part of your life. And how many of you know that the Word of God will change you? It will change you. I get to speak to you for about 30 minutes each weekend, okay? So you need more than that to move forward. Can I have a good Amen. In that, and so uh, I really encourage you get the bookmark out there. Be part of the of uh, we read the Bible through, or a good portion of the Bible through in a year. So be part of that. And uh, this last week, we read these chapters here in Genesis, and we read about Abram. And just let me give you a little bit of background of Abram, and you can find this in chapter eleven and twelve. First of all, God calls Abram and his family. Uh, out of this place, his family was from a place called, are ready for this? Ur. Everybody say Ur. Just say Ur. 
And his family was from this place called Ur. And Ur was really, it was a very progressive place uh, for this time. And it had an advanced educational system, irrigation system, farming, and all that kind of stuff. But what Ur was most famous for is Ur is the place where the bathtub was invented. And so they were into making... So if you were traveling in ancient times and, you know, you came to the city of Ur, as you were going into town, you'd have to sign for, like, the Rotary Club and the Masons. And it would say, welcome to Ur. Home of the bathtub. Oh, boy. (laughs) You know what I'm saying. Well, Ur, you could call Ur hot tub city. It was rub-a-dub in the hot tub. Ha! This is, that's just stupid. Hot tub city. It was rub-a-dub in the hot tub. Ha! Mm. We, we, hot tub. Do y'all, do y'all remember that? Yeah. Am I getting too old? You don't remember that, Skip? A rub-a-dub in a hot tub. Mm-mm. Hot tub. Mm-mm. All right. So anyway. So Abram, his family was really, really blessed. And man, they were well-respected. They had all kind of money. I don't know if his family was in the hot tub business. I don't know. But he was doing really, really well. But God called him out of his homeland of Ur into a a, a new place where God would really begin to bless Abram's life in a way that he could never imagine. It's so important for us to remember that, you know, it doesn't matter what we have, what kind of comforts we have in the natural. It is so important to follow God. Can I have a good amen to that? So important to follow God. Law. Oh God. And so what happens is he kind of delays in the beginning, Abram and his family, you know, and you've heard that delayed obedience is disobedience, but I also want to say that delayed obedience is better than no obedience. And maybe some notice the theme obedience there. We're dealing with just pure law. This, this guy doesn't know the Christian faith. Some of you in the season of prayer and fasting, you know, God is reminding you of some things that he's spoken to you. And for our lives to move forward, we really need to obey God. In order for our lives to move forward, we really need to obey God. How on earth did Tiger Woods' life move so far forward without him being a Christian? I'm, I just would like an explanation from one of these uh, so-called pastors regarding that fact. He leaves Hot Tub City and he you know, leaves what he had there and he moves his whole big family and they head out to the land of Canaan, and God told him to go to the land of Canaan. But Abram goes to the land of Canaan. You can begin to read about this in chapter 12. And, you know, God tells Abram, look, go to the land of Canaan, and, man, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a great nation. And, you know, those who who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And, man, God gives him all these promises. And so Abram goes to the land of Canaan, but he gets to the land of Canaan, and the Bible says that a famine sets in. So a famine sets in. Now notice... He's giving us the um, the Pastor Weems notes. He's not really reading the text. Well, why don't we do that? If you have your Bible, open up to uh, the book of Genesis, chapter 12. Book of Genesis, chapter 12. Let's spend a little bit of time reading. Let's take a look at what the biblical text says and what God has revealed regarding Abraham. Chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, apparently hot tub, hot tub city. I had no, I mean, I've been reading the Bible for years and, uh, you know, 
both the Hebrew and the Greek, and I had no idea that uh, Abram was from Hot Tub City, the, 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 the birthplace of the jacuzzi, apparently. Uh, now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, in all the families of the earth, you, you know, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now how is it possible that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through Abram? Is it because Abram was so obedient? Well, let's continue. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had together and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oaks of Morah, and at that time the Canaanites were in the land." And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the, on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. Now, interesting. So he builds an, builds an altar to the Lord. You, you kind of like think of it like mini church. I obviously Abraham here is worshiping, has set up a place to worship, and uh, you know the the one true God. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai his wife, "I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance." And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now notice, he's, this is kind of a half-truth, by the way. Sarai is his half-sister. But uh, at this point, he would, he, he's, he's risking his wife's chastity um, in order to spare his own life. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman uh, was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So, you know, obviously there's, a, there's kind of a, <clears throat> an obedience problem here, you think? So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him, into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. 
to the place where he had made an altar at the at first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from the, from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley uh, and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, and they were great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes. And look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also may be counted. Arise and walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Notice wherever he goes, he builds an altar to the Lord. It's important because he's doing, you know, the Old Testament version of church at the time. Okay, now chapter fourteen. Now in the days of Amraphel, uh, Am the king of Shinar, Arioch, the king of El- Elisar, Keralatimer, uh, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim. These kings made war with Bera, the king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, and Shinab, the king of Adma, uh, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedalaomer, but on the thirteenth year they rebelled, and in the fourteenth year Kedalaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated Raphaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, and Zuzim in Ham, and Emin in Shava, Kiriathim, and the Horites, and their hill country of the Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. And then they turned back and came to En Mishphat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Malachites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedalaramur, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphael, king of Shinar, and Arioch, the king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and they went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Anar. 
These were the allies of Abram when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive. He led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of uh, Kedalaramir and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, keep in mind, Melchizedek here, this is probably Christ. You know, this is definitely a Christophany, okay? How do we know that? Well, if you understand what Hebrew says about Melchizedek, he has no beginning and no end, and Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek forever. Jesus is not a priest in the order of Aaron. Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is Melchizedek here. And And notice he brings out bread and wine. What should that tell you? It should point you right back to the Lord's Supper is what it should do. Okay? So, blessed be Abram, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram gave him a tenth of everything, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say that I have made Abram rich. Notice he doesn't want to be compensated for the military action that set them free. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anur, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. We continue. This is the most important chapter next, chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, I am your reward, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram and said, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as as righteousness. This is exactly why Abram was considered to be righteous before the Lord, not because he was obedient, because clearly he struggled in that department. But Abram believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Now, this is exactly what Paul picks up on in the book of Romans chapter 4. In fact, if you have your Bible, flip on over to Romans chapter 4, I'm on my way there right now with my uh, computerized Bible. Hang on a second here. 
Here's what it says. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified, that means declared righteous by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the scripture say? It says, Abram believed God, and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Quote, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So when we read of Abraham, when we read of Abram, and we see, we find out that, yes, he was blessed, but he wasn't declared righteous before God because of his obedience. He was declared righteous because of his faith, because of his belief and trust in what God said. That's what Genesis 15 just told us. Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So therefore, when God says that through Abram's offspring, that would be Jesus, the one and only, the one seed, the whole world would be blessed. It's talking about the blessing of the forgiveness of sins and salvation as a free gift from God through the seed, the one descendant of Abraham. In the Bible, we're following Jesus' story. So Abram wasn't blessed because of his obedience. No, he was blessed by grace through faith, all because of God's graciousness who counted Abram's faith as righteousness. That's what Romans 4 says. Now, let's see, with all of this in mind, let's see what Pastor Weems does with this passage. He goes to the land of Canaan, but he gets to the land of Canaan, and the Bible says that a famine sets in. So a famine sets in, and so for whatever reason, Abram doesn't stay there. So once again, there, there's obviously some temptation there. Man, is God going to really provide for me? Man, I come to this land of Canaan. I'm, I'm f- Text doesn't say that he sinned in going down to Egypt. Doesn't say that at all. In fact, the sin was in lying to Pharaoh. Famine and, you know, I don't know if this is really going to work out. So the Bible says that he goes down to the land of Egypt. Everybody say down. And you'll see this in the Old Testament. Every time the Bible references people going to Egypt, regardless of where they are geographically to Egypt, even if they're below Egypt, the Bible always says they went down to Egypt. And that's because Egypt represents the world. Listen, when you go back to the world, you're going down. Do you know what I'm saying? And so the Bible says Abram goes down to Egypt and that's where he gets in all kind of trouble and he lies about Sarah and he meets Pharaoh and Pharaoh takes his wife uh, in, in, into Pharaoh's house and Abram gets in all kind of trouble there. But of course, you know, God brings plagues to Pharaoh's house and Pharaoh realizes, man, this isn't Abram's sister, this is his wife. And, you know, he gives, gives Sarah back to Abraham and then Abram finally gets out of there and he goes back to Canaan and it's real interesting He goes back to Canaan and he goes back to the place where he had built an altar to God. And isn't that what we do a lot of times? We're tempted. Here's here's the three areas that Abram got tempted in, okay? He got tempted in the area of provision, protection, and God's purpose. He gets to the land of Canaan and it's like, man, there's no food here. There's a famine. 
Is God really going to provide for me provision? Then he goes down to Egypt. And Notice this is eisegesis. He's, he's inserting stuff into the text. Okay? But when you understand that Abram was declared righteous because he trusted and believed God, it changes all of this. All of this eisegeting that this guy's doing is missing the big point of what's going on there. Because Abram is, a, is in the, the direct line from Adam through Noah to Abram and then forward. In fact, God in the future generations would be called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're following the scarlet thread, following the genetic line of the Messiah, the one seed, the one who was promised who would crush the head of the serpent and whose heel would be bruised as a result of it, the one who would be our Savior, promised to Adam and Eve. That's why we're following this line. That's why we're stopping here with Abram. And we're learning something more here as the revelation gets clearer. That salvation is God declares those who believe him and trust him to be righteous as a gift. We are all descendants of Abraham, those of us who believe God, that we he is gracious and kind and merciful to us on account of what Christ has done for us. This is a story, ultimately, that points us to Christ, not our own pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, be obedient kind of righteousness, but the righteousness that is given by faith. Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Is God really going to provide for me provision? Then he goes down to Egypt, and that's where it all starts to unravel. And he's like, man, Pharaoh's going to come, and my, my wife's beautiful. Man, he's going to kill me. He's tempted in the area. Man, is God going to get my back? Is God going to protect me? So he tells Sarah to line all this stuff, and he says, so that it may go well with us. God already told him it was going to go well with him. He's, he's tempted in the area of the purposes of God. And that's what happens to us in our lives, man. We, 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 we step out and, and, and we're following the call of God. And then maybe you come to a place and, and you're, you're tempted like, man, okay, I, I thought I was following God here. But man, is God going to provide here? I mean, man, I was supposed to get a raise or man, the, the bills. Notice how he just turned Abraham and Abram into an example. You know, he, he, the, the pattern of Abram's life. Well, that's got to be your life, too. God's going to speak to you and have some kind of a purpose for you. Let me continue reading. From Romans chapter 12, verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We can say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after Abraham had been circumcised? It was not, a it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, or through obedience, but through the righteousness of faith. For if the adherents of the law 
who are who are the ones to be heirs? Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he has been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the bareness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. So notice what uh, Pastor Stovall here is doing. He's retelling the story of Abraham in such a way that he's not pointing us to the righteousness of faith. This is why one of the, another really, really critical, important hermeneutical method is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Clear passages govern, and you'll notice we're reading as we're reading the narrative of Abraham. It needs a theological and doctrinal interpretation, and Paul provides that for us in here in Romans chapter four, and also he does it again in Galatians. If you want to read that as well, so Paul, in pointing us to Abraham, points us to Abraham's faith. He points us to his trust in God, that he doesn't waver in distrust regarding the promises of God. Yet the way Stovall's telling the Abraham story, I mean, he's missing the point completely. Let's continue. Out here, I mean, man, I was supposed to get a raise, or man, the, the bills are piling up, or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm single and I've been, I've been putting God first and all this stuff, but I mean, is God going to provide? Or it's an area of protection. It's the same way. See, these same things, it's the same way that he tempted Adam in provision, protection, and purpose. He comes to Abraham. He tempts Abraham in provision, protection, and purpose. He's later in the, in the desert going to tempt Jesus with provision, protection, and purpose. So Abraham thinks there's a famine, man, so God's not going to provide for him. And then he thinks, okay, I'm in Egypt. Now Pharaoh's going to kill me. It's so funny. I notice about this. It's so much like us. Do you ever know, like, like when you read the rest of the story, you realize Pharaoh, I mean. Yeah, the reason why it sounds so much like you is because you've eisegeted this entire theology. This is not the theology that the Bible reveals regarding Abraham and how we're to understand this story. It's the exact opposite. And the reason why it sounds so much like you is because you read your own theology into that text. You know, he gives, he gives uh, Sarah back and all that kind of stuff. He doesn't harm Abraham or, or anything like that. I mean, Abraham was like expecting the worst. Isn't that just like us as humans? Don't we just always assume the worst? You know what I'm saying? Like you forgot your keys and you're like, oh, it's dementia. <laughs> oh, my God, I can't remember anything anymore. Dementia's setting in. You know what I'm saying? Your butt hurts. You're like, I, got, I got butt cancer, man. They're going to have to remove a cheek. Serious. 
serious, serious. You know, you don't make your sales for the month. That's it, man. I'm losing my job. It's over. I'm fired. I'm done. I'm done. A bankruptcy. I'm only 22. You know, you're single, you like somebody and, and, and it doesn't work out. And it's like, that's it. I'm going to be single for the rest of my life. That's it. That was my only chance. It's over. It's over. It's over. I'm a widow. Where's the widow's home? I'm 25. I'm moving in the widow's home. The text doesn't teach any of this. Widow. Where's the widow's home? I'm 25. I'm moving in the widow's home. You see these people looking for seats around here? Sir, I'm so sorry that you're having trouble finding a seat because many of these people should have gone to the Atlantic Coast High Service. Look, he can't even sit by his wife or his girlfriend there. We are so sorry. There's a ton of these people. They should have been at the other service today at Atlantic Coast High, and it would have made your experience a lot better. So... Okay, sorry about that. Pack your bags. You're going on a guilt trip. I'm telling y'all, man, if, 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 if we don't... Did I tell you about Atlantic Coast High School? 1030. It's the best service. It's my best message. Everything's better over there. Once you go over there, there's no reason to come here. I preach live over there. It's all the same. Just check it out next weekend. Will you? Robert Morris will be live over there just like he's live over here, I'm sorry, where was I? What was I talking about? So, and all the people that couldn't get a seat and you had to leave the church today and you needed Jesus and you needed salvation and all that kind of stuff, we're so sorry. <laughs> Listen, every now and then I'm going to throw some guilt at you. All right, so just... Come on, man, I'm messing with you, but come on, man, let's, let's help move the kingdom of God forward by say, maybe saying yes to Atlantic Coast High just a couple of times a month. Yeah, yeah so the, you move the kingdom of God forward by sacrificially going to a different satellite campi of his church rather than going to the main one. Yeah, that, that's how you move the kingdom of God forward, yeah. Whew, I had no idea that's how you did it. Just a couple of times a month. Yes, okay. Everybody say yes. Okay, thank you. Just checking. Okay. So anyway, Abel's tempted in these areas, you know, provision, protection, and purpose. It's the same thing that Jesus was tempted. Remember when Jesus was in the wilderness and was coming off his 40-day fast? And Satan comes to him and says, now watch, the Bible says that after 40 days, Jesus was hungry. When you have only been drinking water for 40 days and hunger kicks in, that means you are starving to death. You are dying. Your body's going to start feeding on itself and its internal organs if you don't get some food. So what is Jesus tempted? Man, is God going to provide? And what is Satan? Because Satan comes and says, man, you're the son of God. Come on, where's the provision? Man, you better, you better turn some of these stones to bread. Jesus says it's written. It, it, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is saying, my provision is in the word 
of God. And God himself will provide a whole lot better than you can. Come listen to me. God will provide for your life. You might feel like it's a famine in Canaan. You might feel like that, man, where, how's God going to bring this in? I'm telling you, don't go down to Egypt. Don't back up. You keep moving forward in God and he'll provide. What happens? So there's provision. Then you keep moving forward, and then God will provide. That's a quid pro quo. That's law. That's a wage. That's not a gift. That's that's blessing via works righteousness. The very thing that the apostle Paul was preaching against in Romans chapter four. Wow. With is, is God's protection. Hey, if you're the son of God, throw yourself off this cliff. Won't, won't he protect you? The next thing he tempts him with is the purposes of God. Satan knew Jesus was there to reclaim the earth and redeem man and all that stuff. And Satan's like, look, I'll give it to you. It's mine. I'll just give it to you. You don't have to go through all that. Take a shortcut. Just worship me. I'll let you have it. Jesus says, it is written, it is written, it is written. And it's so important. I got good news for you today. Guess what? Even though Adam... It, it, you got good news? Would it be the gospel? And Christ died for our sins? I'm hoping to hear that good news. ...didn't fail, and you don't have Adam inside of you. You don't have Abram inside of you. You have Christ on the inside of you. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And you Why do I feel like I need to back that up? Hang on a second here. I need to go backwards in this just a smidge because... Yeah, we got a problem. Here we go. Fail, and you don't have Adam inside of you. You don't have Abram inside of you. You have Christ on the inside of you. Great. If you're a Christian, uh, you're yeah, you have the Holy Spirit. Greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. And you're going to overcome by sticking to the Word of God and not just saying it is written, but submitting to that. See, you know a lot of law. This is uh, law, self righteousness. Isn't it funny how if you don't properly handle God's word, you always end up back at the do-it-yourself religion? Hmm. Christians, you know what a believer do? We speak the word, but we don't submit to the word. How are you doing at that, Stovall? How, how's that working out for you? But submitting to that. See, you know a lot of Christians, you know what a believer do? We speak the word, but we don't submit to the word. And we have to submit to the word if we're going to experience those blessings. If we're going to overcome. If, if this is all law, this is all quid pro quo wage talk. This is not, where's Jesus? What'd you do with him? And how is it that you hijacked Abram so that he's no longer the man of faith? Hmm. Okay. So watch this. So here's Abram and you know, he goes back to the altar and now he gets right with God. It's just like a lot of Christians, you know. We oh, man. The text does not say he goes back to the altar and gets right with God. The text doesn't say that at all. We get out there. We mess up. We go back to the altar. Aren't you glad that God loves us, that God forgives us no matter what? And I want to say. Well, I'm glad to hear something about God's forgiveness. He messed up a whole bunch. He delayed. He lied. He went down to Egypt. He messed all up. But you know what? God loved him and was with him the entire time. The grace of God will always keep you. Your mistakes cannot negate the promises of God in your life. They might delay them. They might postpone them. But your mistakes cannot negate the promises of God in your life. The grace of God will always keep you. But it's obedience that will move you forward. See, the this is legalistic self-righteousness. 
Wow. 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 No comprehension of faith and grace, at least a proper understanding of it at all, and what Abraham really is, and what it is that made Abraham righteous. wasn't his obedience. Text says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It doesn't say Abraham obeyed God. It said he believed God. The grace of God will always keep you, but it's obedience that'll move you forward. See, the grace of God keeps us, but it's obedience that moves us forward. Can you give us a verse to support this heretical doctrine? And that's my prayer for many of us today, man, that we would, uh, listen, I know, I know the grace of God. Yes, God blesses us and you're in the grace of God and you're saved and you're on your way to heaven. But too much, too many of us and too much of the church, you know, it's like, we're down to Egypt, we're back to the altar. We're down to Egypt, we're back to the altar. We're and then we're Yeah, I don't think that was speaking in tongues, but that's pretty much about how coherent his sermon has been so far biblically. It hasn't been. We're tempted. Oh, is God going to... We're tempted. We're down to Egypt. We mess up. We get hurt. We're back to Canaan. We're back to the altar. We're down to Egypt. We're back to the altar. We're down to Egypt. We're back to the altar. Are you following? The text doesn't say he went to the altar to get right with God. It doesn't say that at all. How about this? I'm glad the grace of God has kept you. God loves you. You're on your way to heaven. But how about we stop going back and forth and start moving forward in the purposes of God? So Abram, he learns his lesson. He hits the altar. He goes and they settle in the land of Cain. And of course, his nephew Lot there and they have all these possessions. So he and Lot have to divide. And then this war breaks out, okay? And the guy, I'm going to read you his name in just a second, but just for for simplification purposes, we're going to call him King Cheese. Everybody say King Cheese. Okay, his name is Tidolamar. Okay, I'm just going to call him King Cheese because he was the big cheese back in this day. And so this war broke out, and it was the king of Sodom and a few other kings. They rebelled against the big cheese, King Cheese back in that day, and he had a group of kings and King Cheese came and he defeated the king of Sodom and his army and these other kings and they took, uh, King Cheese took the possessions and everything off with him, but he also took Lot. Remember, Abram and Lot had separated. They had so much stuff. He also took Lot. Abram found out about it. So Abram rallies up 300. Come on, where's some of my 300 guys? Okay, none. Okay, three. All right, well... Oh, God, help me. He rallies 300 or just over 300, 318 guys. And they go and they chase down King Cheese. They chase down the big cheese who has lot. And against all odds, they defeat him and they bring back all the spoils, all the goods that he took from Sodom and the other kings and lot and everything. And so this is, we're going to pick it up here. In Genesis chapter 14, verse 17, this is right after Abram has been very successful in this military battle. The grace of God has kept him. He's now in Canaan. He's gotten Lot back. And what we're going to see is we're going to see these two kings come out to meet him. There's going to be the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. 
And it's going to be a very, very powerful encounter. So let's pray right now, okay? Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, for the next 10, 12 minutes as we dig in your word, we thank you, God, what you're going to do. Lord, let us respond to what you're saying to us. Amen and amen. Look what it says here in verse 17. It says, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah. After his return from the defeat of Chidolamar, there's big cheese, Chidolamar and the kings who were with him. Verse 18, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Verse 21, Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, and you take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich, except only what was the portion that the young men have eaten and the men who are with me. Verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, everybody say after. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And then in verse five, it says, then he brought him outside. God brought Abram outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars. If you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And then right after this, God makes his covenant with Abram, changes his name to Abraham. Yeah, and you forgot all about the part where Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and how the Apostle Paul picks up and keys in on that. Why is it that, you know, when I as I listen to these seeker-driven entertainers who pose as pastors, that I just don't, there's no evidence that these guys really seriously know how to handle God's Word at all? Yeah, yeah, you understand. These guys do not come off to me as very serious studiers of the scriptures. Descendants be. And then right after this, God makes his covenant with Abram, changes his name to Abraham. So listen to what happens right here. So Abram, he's a successful military battle. He's down in the valley. And watch, these two kings come out to meet him. The king of Sodom and the king of Salem. Okay, now think about this. The king of Sodom comes first. Sodom, that's the place of wickedness. You've probably heard of Sodom. Sodom's a place of wickedness. Sodom is a place of evil. So when you're talking about the king of wickedness, the king of evil, who do you think this represents? Satan. It's a type and shadow of Satan. So here comes the king of Sodom. The king of wickedness is coming out to meet. Okay, now I'm going to point something out here. In a, in a sense, he's right. But when you you got to be really careful when you're doing this kind of stuff because these types and shadows, they can at times be a little bit thin. Think of it like this, is that, you know, is that you've got a very large piece of bread and the type and shadow is a very, very small pad of butter. Um, in other words, you got to make sh- you got to be real careful how you're spreading that thing. 
because uh, if you if you spread it wrong, you ain't going to have enough. It ain't going to work is what I'm basically saying. And so you got it. You know, you don't want to overstretch here. Let's see if he uh, handles the text properly. In a sense, he's right. You know, you got two kings. You got the king of Salem, the king of righteousness, the king of peace. That's Melchizedek. And then you've got well, the king of Sodom, who, which the text has already said that the uh, the people of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful. We we and you want to know what that is? Well, homosexual sin is part of that. To meet Abram as well. Who do you think that represents? Jesus. It's a type and shadow of Christ. In fact, in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7 talks about that Melchizedek had no beginning or no end. Just like in this story, it's like he came out of nowhere. That he had no beginning, no end, and that he was like a high priest, just like Jesus. A lot of theologians think that this is a Christophany. Everybody say Christophany. Come on, let's get theological. Yeah, come on, let's get theological. I don't know how to, but it sounds really fun. I, like For a moment, we'll pretend that we're all theologians. Yeah, um... Take your Bibles, flip on over to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, starting at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is the first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also the king of Salem, that is, the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent, from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. Did you hear that? The law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. 
But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will never change his mind that you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in their office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So, you know, uh, Pastor Stovall, you go ahead and you get theological for a minute. I mean, uh, I, I, I go right ahead. But something tells me that you're really not going to get what's going on here because you, you're completely missing the point so far. Hebrews chapter 7 talks about that Melchizedek had no beginning or no end. Just like in this story, it's like he came out of nowhere. That he had no beginning, no end, and that he was like a high priest, just like Jesus. A lot of theologians think that this is a Christophany. Everybody say Christophany. Come on, let's get theological for 10 seconds. A Christophany is an Old, a Old Testament appearance of Christ. Come, listen, listen. Are y'all ready to learn the Bible or not? I know this is a lot of information. I know this is a lot of stuff, but what happens is we read the Bible and we get in our daily devotions. This is a lot of information. You've got to be kidding me. I know this is a lot of information. I know this is a lot of stuff, but what happens is we read the Bible and we get in our daily devotions and we're like, oh, and the king of Shilazimar and the king of Chidagagaza and the Melchizedekadu. Yeah, like I said, uh, he, he raps far better than he preaches. And we're like, oh, and the king of Shilazimar and the king of Chidagagaza and the Melchizedekadu and the Bladdenet. And the Hamorites and the, and the Hittites and the four kings versus five kings and the. Listen, it's so much more than that. The word of God is perfect. It's so rich. It's so deep. And if you'll dig in and if you'll spend time with God, God will show you things out of the old time. Thousands of years before ever Jesus was born. Melchizedek, righteousness. He represents Jesus. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. No beginning, no end. Jesus is the alpha and the omega. He came as a, high, as a priest. Jesus is our high priest. He came bringing bread and wine. What does that represent? It represents communion. As New Testament believers, we take communion in remembrance of Christ. Old Testament believers, when you would see them partake of communion, it was anticipation of Christ. So Abram comes and he partakes of communion. This is a type of shadow of, guess what, of Abram receiving Jesus. Melchizedek was saying, one day, Abram, Christ's body is going to be broken for you. One day, Abram, Christ's blood is going to be shed for you. Okay, here we got some gospel. All right, yay. Let's see if he can connect some of these dots now. Provide for you. Jesus will always protect you. Jesus' purpose is the best purpose that you could ever have for your life. What? 
Jesus's purpose is the best. What? <sighs> Different gospel. Sorry, this is a gospel of addition. Apparently now Jesus is the great purpose giver. Don't. Is somebody hearing what I'm saying right now? So he receives Christ. And in the New Testament, we partake of him and we remember Jesus. Jesus is our Savior. No matter what we're being tempted. What did he save us from exactly? Uh, a purposeless life? Is that what he saved us from? Uh, from doubting? Did he save us from doubting in God's provision? Is that what he saved us from? You think he can give us some, you know, biblical details? Why do I need a Savior? Savior from what? What am I being saved from? With from the world. Man, only, only Christ died for your sins. Only Jesus provided salvation. What's a sin? What's salvation? Man, only, only Christ died for your sins. Only Jesus provided salvation. Only Jesus can provide what you're looking for. Only Jesus can satisfy your soul. It's only through Christ that you're going to be fulfilled. It's only through Christ that your life is going to move forward. You have only one Savior. Come on, that is Jesus. It is Him, and it's Him alone. Can you give God a hand for that? But then, then Abram does something else. He not only partakes of communion, but the Bible says that he tithes. See, a lot of people think, well, tithing was, you know, that was in the law. It, tithing was way before the law. It's right here in the book of Genesis. And Abram, with all of his riches and hot tub prophets, he gives a tithe to Jesus. When you tithe to your local church, you're not, yes, you're giving to your local church, but you're really giving through your local church to your high priest, Jesus. And Abram, what he does is, see, he remembers, he understands that God is his Savior. But when you have a true revelation that Christ is your Savior, then what you'll do is you will respond to him as your Lord. Jesus, what? Oh. That we respond to him as our Lord. And that's what Abram does. He, he, he remembers and he responds. And so then... When the king of Sodom comes and tempts him, isn't this so like the devil? He comes, he says, look, Abram, look. You can keep all the stuff. I just want the people. The word persons right here in this very passage, the word persons in the Hebrew is literally translated souls. No, you obviously have not studied Hebrew, um, oh man, hang on a second here. The, the Hebrew word there is nefesh, by, uh, nefesh, by the way. Hang on a second. He, uh, it's Genesis 14. Yeah, this is not how you study scripture. I mean, Abram was not actually having a conversation with Satan. And the king of Sodom was not saying, <laughs> you keep the money. <laughs> I'm going to keep the souls. <laughs> yeah, that's not what he was doing at all. Um, I mean, in reality, the king of Sodom was saying, hey, 
just let me uh, take my citizens, you know, and and uh, but you go ahead and keep all the money. But he says, no, 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 no. I, you know, don't want to be compensated for this. But but the the Hebrew word there, nefesh, it's it's soul, a living it's soul, living being, life, self, person, desire, appetite, emotion, or passion. It all depends on the context. And over and again, you're going to see. In the English translations, it'll say, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, the people, but keep the goods for yourself. Abram was not having a conversation with the literal devil, and the literal devil saying, I want the souls. I'm going to take them to hell. That's not what was going on. See, again, he took the, the type and shadow and he just spread it a little bit too thin. Yeah, that it didn't quite cover all of the bread. You know what I mean? Persons, right here in this very passage, the word persons in the Hebrew is literally translated souls. Isn't that what the end? Look, you just live for yourself. You just keep whatever. You live for yourself. You have whatever. I just want souls. Just don't start responding to God because then God's going to start using you to influence people into his kingdom. I don't want that to happen. Listen, you just live for yourself. You buy into the American dream. You just be self-absorbed. You just accumulate. You keep everything for yourself because I want the souls. And the reason that Abram is able to tell him no no, I don't want any part in you. I don't want allegiance with you. I don't want anybody to say that you've blessed me in any way, shape, or form. I'm telling you no forever. The reason that Abram was able to tell Satan no is because he had already told God yes. And where... Do, you cannot do this with this text. I mean, it doesn't say any of this. I mean, are you actually reading the text, sir? When that pull comes, you're tempted. Oh, where's the provision? Oh, where's the protection? Oh, what, what, what about the purpose? When that temptation comes, you will go right back down to Egypt every time. Unless you say yes to God once and for all, all the way. Law, all law. There's no gospel. I mean, he he put a little bit of gospel in there, talked about the forgiveness of sins. and all, But he doesn't know how to connect any of the dots, you know, here. Because he thinks the solution is you need to, you need to. No, it's Christ did. Christ did. Time. Unless you say yes to God once and for all, all the way, all out. Christ, you are my Savior. You are my Lord. I'm saying yes to you. There's a scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 34. It says, awaken unto righteousness and sin not. Melchizedek, righteousness. Jesus, our righteousness. And for too long, the church has said, sin not, sin not, don't sin, sin not. And they forget the first part that says awaken unto righteousness. Until you awaken to the power and presence of God, you're not going to have the power in your willpower to say no to the temptation of the world. Where? Oh, man. I, <laughs> Holy guacamole, talk about taking a verse out of context. Hang on a second. It says, awaken unto righteousness and sin not. 
Melchizedek, righteousness, Jesus, our righteousness. And for too long, the church has said, sin not, sin not, don't sin, sin not. And they forget the first part that says awaken unto righteousness. Until you awaken to the power and presence of God, you're not going to have the power in your willpower to say no to the temptation of the world. Man, this is bad. If you got your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's put verse 34 back in context. Because he just ripped it out of context and turned it into some kind of a thing that we've got to f- remember to keep in mind. So that once we then, you know, make Jesus not just fully commit and surrender to make Jesus our Lord, that that will somehow blamo stop sinning. Let's see if that's what that verse says in context. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. But if, in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each is in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that it is expect, uh, it, he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may, may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, but my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, but I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised, but what kind of body do they come? Yeah, you notice when you put this back into context... It's not saying what he said. It says this isn't some precept that you've got to you got you do your part and then boom, God'll do his part. Yeah, that's not what it says at all. Respond to him as your Lord. Listen, do you want your life to change? Or do you want to keep going back to Egypt, back to the all? This is what the most people in church do. I'm I'm asking, I'm pleading you, you don't have to live like that. I mean, you can keep coming to church like that if you want to, but there's so many, but they just keep coming to church and, and, and they're just, they're back to Egypt, they're back to altar. They're back down to Egypt, they're back to the altar. They're back to Egypt, they're back to the altar. And they wonder why their life isn't moving forward. And they wonder why they're not experiencing more of God because you've got to respond to Jesus as your Lord. You've got to obey, man. The grace of God has kept you, but only obedience will move you forward. You've got to obey. Unbelievable. I I can't find a clear passage anywhere in the scripture that says any of what he just said. That's, I mean, I mean, wow, that's the Galatian heresy squared. Lord, you've got to obey, man. The grace of God has kept you, but only obedience will move you forward. You got to obey. (laughs) 
Okay, so what do I obey? Okay, I, I, Jesus, forgive me all my sins. Okay. Yeah, what, what do I obey? Let's see if he goes to the Ten Commandments. Okay, so what do I obey? Okay, I, I, Jesus, forgive me all my sins. Okay, what do I do? Do something. Anything. Just do something. Bring me a, bring me a, 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 a bulletin. Just do something, anything. Where's the connection card on this thing? Look at this. We're about to have a, look, look, connection card. Member, come to the membership class. I'll be there. Don't let that scare you away. (laughs) Do something. It's just sign up for information on groups. Belong to a serving team. Well, so well, I don't know, I don't know where to serve. I, I don't care. It doesn't matter. Just sign up. Just do something. If you don't like it, we'll get you into something else where you do something. So apparently obedience is just doing something at his church. It has nothing to do with the Ten Commandments. I see. All right. Missions Expo out there. Go on a mission trip. So I don't know about a mission trip. How's God going to provide? Oh, all the way to Africa? Will God protect me? I'm not sure. Is that God's purpose for my life? Protection? Pur- uh, provision? Purpose? Provision, protection, purpose. You're going to go through your whole life? Well, is he going to provide? Is he going to protect? Is his purpose really better than this? Egypt altar, Egypt altar. When are you going to say yes once and for all? Will you do something? Get in a group. Well, I'm, I don't know. I'm kind of afraid of, of meeting new people. Oh, my gosh. You know, Stovall, I I don't know what any of this has to do with what the biblical definition of obedience is. And not only that, if you read chapter 15 of Genesis, you'd find out that the reason why Abraham was declared righteous wasn't because he finally, with all of his heart, made God his Lord. No, it was because he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. You don't know your Bible, and you don't even know what the Christian faith is, Stovall. Will you do something? Get in a group. Well, I'm, I don't know. I'm kind of afraid of, of meeting new people. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Who's not? You, you know how many things? Think of how many times you go to classes, you're in school, you go to a parents' meeting, you go to... You know how many new people you get around every single week and you don't think twice about it? Oh, but when it comes to the church... Keep doing what you're doing. Just give me the souls. I don't know about serving. I I don't know about that. I might have to get to church like 10 minutes early. (laughs) And God forbid I have to go to the Atlantic Coast service. (laughs) Are we going to stay in our comfort? And let the devil have the souls? Or are we going to say yes to God and step out and obey him and have, see our lives move forward? <laughs> Obedience is how your life moves forward. Where's, where's the offering envelope? Look at this thing. Give me, I don't have any money. Give me some money. <laughs> Who's got some money? Loan me some money. I'll pay you back. I mean, do some of you, do, do y'all even know what these look like? Some of y'all? I just want to let you know, this is an offering envelope. Okay? 
Some of y'all have been using this like to put your gum in. You know, wipe your forehead. We'll see some lipstick. So ladies test it. This is an offering envelope. Look, now I'm, I'm going to pay you back. Okay. Just, just do something. Get $5. Get 10 Do Do something. I mean, Abraham tithed. I mean, oh my God. Still about 10%. Oh my gosh, that's like. You know how much money I used to give to the devil when I was out there in Egypt? <laughs> Is anybody feeling me on that? We're staying in church long today. Y'all not going to the, watch the NFL playoffs. We're going to. I'm only kidding. Listen, y'all know I get like this when I fast, right? Will y'all still love me next week? Will y'all come back? Watch, commitment is inconvenience. The cross was not convenient. But that's how our lives move forward in the per- I mean, just do, just take something, just put it in here. Just do something. Look at the candles. These candles represent intercession. Bringing the light of Jesus into someone who needs him. Come pray for somebody. Light a candle. Go to the cross. Put up a prayer request. Do something. My message for the church in 2011, just do something. Will you give something? Will you serve somewhere? Will you pray for somebody? Will you do something? Yeah, I'm doing something. I'm exposing your false doctrine, your Bible twisting, and your false gospel. I, I'm doing something. I don't think it'll count where the hill of beans uh, when it comes to my salvation or anything like that because I've already been declared righteous as a result of Christ's shed blood on the cross. I, I don't do what I do in order to earn my salvation or brownie points or think that God's going to give me provision or anything. I, no, I do what I do because I've been set free by the shed blood of Christ, I am justified. I'm declared righteous. I'm saved. There's nothing I can do to add to that. You'll thank me one day. The grace of God will keep you. You can keep just doing whatever. But if you want your life to move forward... I just tell them I'm preaching. I'll call them back in just a minute. I love doing that. I'm sorry. I've had one every service so far today. I'm believing for one. How many of y'all are coming to the encounter night tonight? Do something. The grace of God will keep you, but it's obedience that moves your life forward. Remember Jesus is your savior. Remember how Jesus loves you. Remember that Jesus is for you. It's only remember that. And I hope that remembrance will produce a response. Remember and respond. The grace of God will keep you, but it's obedience that moves you forward. Do something. Do something. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you for your word. How many of you would first say this? Would every head bowed and every eye closed at all of our locations? 
And X, how many of you would say this? You'd say, Stovall, I'm away from God right now. The first thing that I need to do, I need to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I need to receive Christ. I need a fresh start with God. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand right now wherever you are. Hands going up all over the place. All of our, at the annex everywhere. Raise those hands high. Raise them high. You need a fresh start with God. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it different today. I, I, get, I get bold when I fast. I think that's the Holy Spirit. I'm going to do it different this way today. Turn those lights back up. Turn those lights back up. And I don't know how y'all are going to do this with the campuses. Just You guys just figure this out, but here's how we're going to do it here. And, and I'm not sure the annex as well. Just figure this out. Raise those hands. Look, instead of everybody closing their eyes with their heads down, I want all eyes open and everybody looking up here. Come on, look, we're, we're all just people. Real. Who needs Jesus today? Who needs a fresh start with God? Raise your I want you to stand up and come to this altar right now. If you need to make Christ Lord, you know who you are. Just come to the, come down here. Come on, let's give my hand, everybody. So does this equal salvation? Somebody who makes a decision to make Jesus their Lord. What Bible verse teaches that? I'm not familiar with that passage. At, at, at all of our locations, just just come down to the front. I think it'll I think it'll work for your location. I think it'll work for the annex. Just come on down. Your life is going to move forward from this day. It's going to move forward. And I want to say say this. Everybody in here, I'm believing our entire church. Listen, man, I, I'm, I'm, you can probably tell this, I'm burdened. I've, I've, you know, I changed this message yesterday. As I was praying, I had a, had a whole other message for y'all today. And I, I felt the Holy Spirit drop this into my spirit. So the Holy Spirit dropped this false teaching into your spirit. It couldn't possibly have been the Holy Spirit because... God, the Holy Spirit, has already interpreted the passage that you read, and your interpretation sounds nothing like the interpretation that the Holy Spirit has given us through the writings of the Apostle Paul. whole other message for you all today, and I, I felt the Holy Spirit drop this into my spirit. And I knew I was going to have to walk you through several chapters, and I, I, I knew all that, but I mean, it was like, man, I just, I, I had to get this out. Listen. The grace of God will keep you, but it's obedience that will move you forward. And I feel like in this season of prayer and fasting, there's a special anointing here to say yes to our King of Righteousness. Experience His power so we can say no to those temptations and those things that have been pulling us down. Where we're not down to Egypt, back to the altar. Down to Egypt, back to the altar. You know where we are? We're back to the altar and we're moving forward. We're saying yes to God. We're saying no to the enemy. You know what God says? Watch this. Right after this, remember I read it to you? In 15.1, now after Abram put in that obedience, God says, Abram, I am your shield. I'm your protection. Abram, I... Wow. No, it makes it clear in 15 that Abram believed God and God credited to him as righteousness. You are attributing Abraham's righteousness to his obedience, and the text says nothing of the sort. In fact, Rome, uh, Romans 4 makes it clear that's, it was, you know, man, wow.
Talk about not knowing how to handle the Bible. Protection. Abram, I am your reward. I am your provision, Abram. Lord, you're able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could think or ask. We're going to pray a prayer right now. I want everyone up here, I want you to repeat this prayer. It's a simple prayer. I want you to mean it with all your heart. Real simple. You ready? Oh, yeah, it's real simple. Just mean it with all your heart or else you'll go to hell. Say, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sins and I trust in you as my Lord and Savior. Jesus, I say yes to you. And I say no to sin, to self, and to everything that hinders my relationship with you. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for everlasting life. In your name we pray. Forgiveness from what? Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for everlasting life. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. Come on, do you believe that? Do you believe that today? It happened. Now listen, here's what we're going to do. We've only been here an hour and 10 minutes. And I know that playoff game does not start until 3.30. Okay. Hey, hey, can we respond to our Lord? Can we give Jesus about 10 more minutes today? Just about 10 more minutes today? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have We're going to have time. You can go ahead and give Jesus 10 more minutes, but uh, I'll, I'm going to bow out. That was uh, legalistic self-righteousness. That w- and The gospel is was not correctly preached there because Christ's active and passive obedience were not both proclaimed. The idea of the imputed righteousness of Christ completely lost on Stovall. Not having a righteousness of our own, uh, read Philippians 3 but having the righteousness of Christ given to us as a gift. That was completely lost on him. What you heard was nothing more than pull yourself up by your legal, uh, religious bootstrapism, and his reading of Genesis missed the whole point. Because he said that Abram was blessed because Abram was obedient. No, the text says Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is repeated in in Romans 4 and in Galatians. His interpretation is 180 degrees the opposite of what the Holy Spirit has given us to understand regarding Abraham. Abraham was the man of faith. That's what the scriptures tell us. Stovall, he told us the complete opposite. Apparently, Jesus' forgiveness on the cross just gives you a, a fresh start so that you can get it right. And this is very akin to the false doctrine, false teaching of Rick Warren. Is it any wonder that more and more of these seeker-driven guys are sounding more and more and more self-righteous and legalistic, and they're completely oblivious to the cross? Sad. Stop and pray for them, please. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You know the, the you know what to do. Pick a yellow button and help us out. We truly could use your support so we can keep doing what we, what we are doing. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition of Fighting for the Faith or any previous editions, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. 
Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.